0: It's great to be here today with Jackson Pitts, who I believe likes to be called Jack, who is a condensed matter physicist that I met at the Chino conference on the quest for a spiritual home. And I'm really looking forward to getting to know Jack better and also to talk about some condensed matter physics, since (laughs) that's something I've never had an opportunity to talk about before. So So Jack, could you get us started and just introduce yourself a little bit, maybe just a little bit about your background and then what you're doing now?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I am, like you said, I'm a condensed matter physicist, and um, there are lots of ways to describe that. One of the sort of less helpful ways of saying what that means is that it's um, the, the physics that goes on that is bigger than a molecule and smaller than a continent. It's uh, another way. <laughs> so um, another way of saying it is, it's the it's the physics of um, many many particles interacting together. And there are a couple of other areas where you have so-called many-body physics, um, but that's that's basically uh, what what condensed matter is. Um, I did my PhD at UC Riverside, finished up in 2019, and um, since then, I've been working for a startup which is in the um, field of glass manufacturing. Uh, but we're actually we're making use of microgravity on the International Space Station to um, to make superior quality glass uh, devices. So, um, but
0: wow, how do you get? How do you get that opportunity? I mean, wouldn't everybody uh, is, have access to the to the space?
1: that's <laughs> a that's quite a treat. And um so been doing that for uh about three years since uh since the middle of 2019, 2020. Um we got, got rolling on that and um been really enjoying that.
0: You don't have to go up there, do you?
1: I I have not been up there yet. Um <laughs> But I have I have been supporting supporting operations uh, up uh-huh. there, and um, you know on on wow. the line with on the line with Huntsville as the mediator up to the the
0: station. So, when you were growing up, did you always want to be a condensed matter physicist or or a fireman or, or
1: what? <laughs> <you>? <laughs> no, I mean uh, not not condensed matter physics, but certainly. Um, certainly space exploration certainly astronaut was number one at the mm-hmm. at the beginning um and um that that persisted quite a while um the uh, the love of science and um and especially especially science that was on the kind of physical sciences side but, uh, especially physics and um uh, you know got my hands on um, Stephen Hawking pretty early on and, and other, other little um, silly silly uh, references of, of that thing, um, but, um, but always had lots of interests. So that was one, um, but...
0: Well, so how do you differentiate particle physics and condensed matter physics?
1: Yes, okay, so particle physics is where you want to break things apart into the smallest pieces that you can possibly find, see what is ma- see what the world is made of, and determine what the governing interactions are for those elementary particles. And the elementary particles kind of get more and more elementary as the decades roll on,
2: mm-hmm. hopefully.
1: Um, that's, that's the goal. Um, Condensed matter physics takes a little bit of a different approach where the starting point is from particles which you already understand pretty well. Condensed matter physics was originally called solid state physics. um, And it's called that because it was the physics of what goes on in materials, in usually solid materials. And Solid materials, typically, um, you know, we think about things like...
0: particles that are already stuck together or... Particles
1: already stuck together, yeah. Um, And the the kind of perfect, the archetypal um, solid would be a a crystal. And when Mm -hmm. we talk about crystals, what we mean is something which has the... Molecules or atoms or ions spaced at regular intervals from each other in a in an ordered uh, fashion in in a crystal lattice. Um, there are other things which we talk about being solids, which a condensed matter physicist wouldn't necessarily call a solid. Things like wood. Wood is so complicated. You know, it's it's uh, cellulose and it's. Uh, um, really, really kind of a very, very unusual structure. So we're not really talking about that. We're talking about things where the there's an ordered structure to where the atoms are placed.
0: Well, I mean, the obvious thing that jumps into my mind is that wood comes from a tree, which is a living thing. Right. Crystals are usually associated with non-living things, but there is this one crystal that's somewhere in between, and that would be the DNA that the crystal formation of DNA
2: mm-hmm.
0: so does condensed matter physics ever look at DNA as a crystal or is that too much on the life side
1: sure uh, there certainly is um, and there are there are other crystal structures which are studied in physics which are on the sort of biophysics or biology side mm-hmm. um, wh- one example one class of those would be uh, protein crystals um where the um the structure of the of the protein is analyzed through x-ray diffraction and other other techniques um but but certainly anytime anytime you have a uh, a repeated uh lattice structure Mm -hmm. uh so dna has that um in a one-dimensional system, and, and it coils in on itself in mm-hmm. uh, in ways which I really don't understand, and, and which I haven't studied myself. Um, so the exact techniques for you know, uh, you know DNA crystallography and yeah. uh, scattering, I, you know, I don't I don't have that expertise. Right.
0: But. I, I was just trying to figure out where the where the dividing line was. Um, well, as you're talking about crystals, a couple of things jump out to me from the article that I read that you sent me, which was a very interesting article. Um,
2: Good.
0: One of the things that it said is that the large system is less symmetrical than the underlying structure would suggest. Symmetrical as it is, a crystal is less symmetrical than perfect homogeneity. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to kind of imagine that in my mind. So perfect homogeneity would be when everything is equidistant from itself. Would that be perfect homogeneity? And then a crystal has some sort of structure, which makes it less symmetrical than that other thing that is just like, like if I had a Rubik's cube, for example, (laughs) would you, would you call that perfectly homogeneous?
1: This is a great question. So this is a question about what physicists mean when we say symmetry. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what a physicist means by symmetry is we talk about symmetries as nouns, actually. Um, But a symmetry is something which you can do to a system after which the system looks the same as before you did it. So if you were to... um, take a Rubik's cube and rotate one of the, uh, one of the rows, th- uh, four times.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is a symmetry of the Rubik's cube, because after you've done that four times, you're back to where you started. Okay. Um, if you were to take a cube, which didn't have colors on it, then if you were to rotate it just one time,
2: mm-hmm. you know, just
1: 90 degrees instead yeah. of 360 degrees, that would be a symmetry of the cube because if you did that while i wasn't looking i wouldn't be able to tell whether you had done anything or not right so in terms of the question of why a crystal has less symmetry than something that's homogeneous if you were to take a um, an ocean of water and an ocean without the fish in it but a, but an, a whole ocean of water and while I wasn't looking, you were to move everything one yard to the right, or um, to the right for you. Mm-hmm. And then I turned my head back and took a look. I would not be able to tell that you had moved it at all. Um, but you could do that with any distance because I can't see the difference. The water is the water is all water. You know, sure the, the atoms may be in a different place now, but I can't notice the difference
2: mm-hmm
1: on the other hand if you take so with a with with something like water with something that's homogeneous you're not going to be able to notice the difference no matter what you do to it uh,
0: so in that sense homogeneous means everything is just all mixed up in there
1: everything's all mixed up yeah
0: okay yeah. with but a, crystal, a crystal has particular structure
1: it has particular structure so if you move it exactly by the distance uh, which is the the ionic spacing, the atom spacing? Then I won't notice. But if you move it off of that, then I will. Mm-hmm. And if you rotate it by a certain angle, maybe I wouldn't notice it. If you think of a uh, a crystal which has you know some sort of a hexagonal symmetry, you know you think about those. Um, crystal which grows in a geode or something Mm -hmm. where you can see that it has this um this faceted um structure if you were to rotate it maybe by 120 degrees or maybe just by 60 degrees or something i wouldn't notice but if you rotate it by 45 degrees if you rotate it by 10 degrees then a different then i wouldn't be i wouldn't have that same facet facing me Mm -hmm. right uh, was before so
0: okay so that yeah that helps a lot um then the the other thing it said was this asymmetry um the fact that well maybe that's too complicated this month because it's talking about the crystals and the dipole moment which is maybe we don't need to get into that um another thing that came up was this idea that um you're talking about things that are put together and things that aren't put together right I know people are always complaining about reductionistic science but one of the quotes in that article is that synthesis is expected to be all but impossible analysis may be not only possible but fruitful and so I thought about it and that in terms of synthesis is the is the putting together of something analysis is like the taking apart of something so for a physicist I think I mean, I've heard that when if you're talking about all those particles that are down at that elementary level, that it's hard to imagine how they get put together into structures that can move up the different scales, Mm -hmm. but that there is great fruitfulness in analyzing them down to that particle level, because then there's so much you can do with that scientifically to understand so many things in the world that allow us to have cell phones and space station, space stations and all that kind of stuff, right? Right. So I thought that maybe that showed that there was a positive reason for reductive science.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there certainly is. Um, and um, if you, this is the uh, more is different article by mm-hmm. uh, Philip Anderson. Um, and and he starts out at the very beginning. He um, he says, "Yes, we we have to to a certain degree embrace reductionism on a, on on some sort of metaphysical level, um, but that that that's not the whole story." Got it there? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Huh.
1: May still be a topic of controversy among philosophers, but among the great majority of active scientists, I think it is accepted without question. Um, and so certainly uh, there is there is a great reason to look at smaller and smaller scales and see what the world is made of at, at smaller length scales or um, higher energy scales, which is the same thing, but I I won't explain why. Um, but um, but at the same time Anderson is is explaining in this paper why uh, why that's not the whole story and why um, why physics has to take other approaches when it comes to the many-body problem when it comes to, um, interactions among many, many particles together.
0: So is the many-body problem in condensed matter physics the same, roughly the same idea as the n body problem in astronomy?
1: It's it's very similar, yes.
0: So do you want to describe the many-body problem?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the, the many-body problem is that you can um, You can understand the underlying interactions, the underlying uh, principles which govern the motion of particles and uh, the forces between them. But once you introduce more than two or three, depending how you count um, objects, you can no longer arrive at um, a general solution to the problem. By general solution, what I mean is you can't you can't write down a um, an equation that is in terms of simple functions that will say where these things will be um, later in time. Um, there may be special special cases, highly artificial cases where you can know exactly where things will be over time, but that won't that won't work for the majority of the, uh, of the ways that the, uh, particles or stars or planets could be moving. Um, and what that means is that a a bottom up approach is not usually sufficient, um, in as a, uh, as a method for, for solving many body problems. So, I don't want to give the impression that, that that means you have to be top down all the way, but. Um,
0: right, right. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot in, in this little neck of the woods about the bottom up and the top down kind of having to work right. together in some sense. So one of the things he talks about a lot in this article is the constructionist hypothesis. And uh, I think I've worked out in my head what he means by that, but could you just briefly go over what constructionist theory is? And then I wanna ask you a couple of questions about it.
1: Well, by that he just means um, writing down the, um, so what you would do in in physics is you would write down the uh, the equations of motion which um, in higher level physics are, are equations involving the energy and uh, derivatives of the energy. You would write all those down and you would solve a difficult uh, differential equation involving many, many, many equations. um, And you would arrive at the, at the answer. Um, So that would be, that would be a bottom up approach. Um, It's, in in sort of the the more uh the more basic level physics it would be like writing down your big you sum up all of the forces of all of the particles and that gets you how things are moving and then you figure out how they're moving. But there are too many equations to solve and the equations are too complex to solve them generally. So I, I think I think that's what he means by the Constructive, constructivist hypothesis.
0: Well, I I guess if I if I think think of this in connection with the Christopher Fuchs video about Cubism, one of the things that he talks about in there is that <clears throat> the debate is actually about the reality status of what the math shows. So you're doing all this math. Mm-hmm. Um, is that actually showing us? Even if the math could be done in a way that would perfectly illustrate um, what all these bodies are doing in a given period of time or over a period of time, even if the math could be done that way, you have math. (laughs) Do you have reality? I mean,
1: oh, well, So that's that's yeah that's getting into the um the the fuchs video that i sent um i don't know do you want to do you want to get into that now um i think so
2: i
0: guess well okay let's let's back yeah. up, let's back up to the constructionist thing one of the things that um anderson said was the ability to reduce everything to simple fundamental laws does not imply the ability to start from those laws and reconstruct the universe
1: right exactly um,
0: and and part of that is he brings up the twin difficulties of scale and complexity and that that's part of the reason that this is true
1: yes yeah, so um, I've heard I've heard Eric Weinstein talk about it like this that. Um, if you're, if you're studying chess, then the particle physicists are trying to find out the rules of chess, how each, how each chessman is allowed to move, um, how a chessman is taken off the board, what constitutes winning. That's what the particles are. Particle physicists are trying to figure out the condensed matter. Physicists are trying to figure out strategies for playing chess. Um, and so the the constructivist hypothesis that Anderson is talking about there is the idea that by learning uh, learning the rules of chess, that's going to easily teach you the strategies of chess. And that's just not really the case. You need to know the rules of chess in order to know the strategy. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to be able to, it, there's there's no short path from knowing the rules to figuring out the uh, the winning strategies.
2: And...
0: Oh, yeah, uh, I mean, that seems to be absolutely true in something like painting a picture too. You can read all the books you want. You can even watch all the videos you want about painting. But you don't find out anything until you pick up a brush and start painting. And you're a painter too, right? I am. Yeah. So you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. I'm... I, I do, but I'm also I'm also curious about um, about your painting and uh, and your experience with with that. So, um,
0: well, I mean one of the one of the real anomalies with painting is that you never know what your materials are going to do until you're working with your materials. And mm-hmm. I mean one of one of my naivetes when I first started out, I started with watercolor, and watercolor is wonderful because just on its own, it will make all these wonderful mistakes that turn into happy accidents that you can actually use <clears throat> because the, the, uh, the chaos that shows up can have patterns in it and it can become quite useful. And I got very used to working that way. And then when I, but at one point I thought, well, you know, surely acrylic would give me more flexibility, more opportunities. So I, I thought I'm going to switch over to acrylic. But then acrylic has its own problems because acrylic does not give you any happy accidents. If you want happy uh, accidents, no. you have to produce your own happy accidents.
2: Right.
0: Every mark has to be intentional. You can't just fail your way into something with acrylic. So then I thought, well, you know, um, acrylic has its own problems because the way that it moves on the paper or on the canvas and the way that it affects the brushes, you have to have different kinds of brushes. And I mean, there's all these physical things that relate to the paint. So I thought, well, surely oil would be easier because it takes longer to dry. You have more time to work with it. Then you start working with oil and it has its whole set of problems.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. You
0: keep thinking that you can find something. There's some magic in the material the magic isn't in the material and i don't even think the magic is in the painter <laughs> the magic is somewhere else <laughs> what's your opinion about that
1: um well i mean on the on the very superficial level i uh yeah acrylic is acrylic is uh is the one that i i kind of stay away from i love watercolor i love oils um but I don't do a lot with acrylic because of that, because it's so, um, I mean, what you put down is there. Um, I like, I like having things mix around. I like the, uh, um, reticulation of the little, uh, of the pigments, the separation of the pigments and, uh, granulation,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: which I think you can get, you can certainly get it in, in both watercolor and oils. So those are those are the ones that I mostly stick to, um, but um, yeah, I I I don't know I don't know where it is when it comes to painting. Um, I and I'm I I think a lot about the the question of how uh, how much control to try to exercise over the over the paint. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what that does to the experience of painting. um, So um, sometimes I think I'm a little bit, I try to be a little bit more controlled than I should. Other times, I just get totally exhausted with the uh, with the attempt to be uh, to be a little bit freer. Um, I used to do more more abstracts and it got it got very tiring for me to kind of just like do the sort of data toss something in and and Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know I, I think I heard you you talk a little bit recently about um about the task of working with those happy accidents or working with the uh with what is given by uh, by the painting in the early stages.
2: Well,
0: because I uh, I've I've over the over the years I've developed two ways of approaching a painting, <clears throat> regardless of what medium I'm working in. One of the ways is to create a bunch of chaos
2: mm-hmm.
0: in one way or another. Maybe layers and layers of paint. Um, sometimes I put texture on the canvas, and then when I walk when I float the paint over the texture, it'll flow different ways because the texture is on the canvas. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Or when I'm layering one color over another, the texture accepts the color in a different way where the texture is high or low. And so that by itself will create some anomalies on the canvas. That's one way I do it. Another way I do it is I go in and I take an old painting that was a failure and I turn it upside down and I paint over the top of it. Typically, if I want to do something representational, like a figure or a, a village scene or something like that, I'll take an old failed painting of something else, turn it upside down, superimpose my drawing on top of that, and then I'll start painting. And because that thing is already there, I have to fight against it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I don't have white that I'm working. I'm, I'm working against this mass of colors
2: that I <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Yeah,
0: and it, So it, it changes the way I see things. But in the other kind where I create this canvas, this uh, chaos on the canvas, um, when I start working then afterwards, over the years, I've internalized this set of elements and principles of design. So I'm not just throwing paint on the canvas. I have uh, already an idea in mind about proportion and balance and um, color temperature and color intensity and how size should work and, and to what extent I want to use line or texture in a painting. And so I have this whole thing that I've, I've done so much with this, that it's completely internalized in me. I don't think about it, except if I'm having a problem finding my way through a painting, I'll stop and I'll, then I can analyze it a little bit and say, huh, maybe I'm too half-half with the color temperature, or maybe I don't have uh, appropriate, um, maybe I have too many elements in this painting and I need to scale back and have fewer elements or those kinds of questions I'll ask myself as I'm working. But that enabled me to I I like to do figurative work but I don't like fussy perfect representational figurative work I like to look at it I just don't like to paint it
2: (laughs) yeah yeah
0: so um, it enabled me to do non-objective work and still feel like I was a part of the painting it wasn't just a I understand exactly what you're saying when you try to do something that's just totally expressionistic it can get very tiring after a while it's just like well yeah supposedly that's expressing something about me but what's it expressing if i'm just throwing paint at the at the page you know where if it's if i've internalized some set of rules let's say like the, like the physical rules that hold the particles together, if I've internalized that, then as I'm working, it's a natural part of my work, even though I'm not consciously thinking about it. Does that make sense?
1: It does. How, um, how quickly do you try to resolve when you're going about it through the, well, either way, through the chaos way or through the upside down way? Um, I, I've found that, I mean, I've I've done similar things um in terms of putting down a few marks and and you know uh just to just to get started and then try to kind of solve solve the problem that is created by that. Um but sometimes I find that I I I just start doing kind of predictable compositions that um and I feel like I'm getting in a rut and maybe a maybe a little bit trying trying to fix things too quickly, maybe. I don't know.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on when you say you put down a few lines. Um, It took me a long time to come to the place where I felt like I have to have an approach. I mean, I, I went to a lot of different workshops with famous artists, and the problem with that is you come out of that workshop with work that looks more or less like the work of the artist who was teaching you the work, right? Yeah. So I had to stop doing that for a long time so that I could develop my own style, and I don't really have a style. I mean, you can probably tell when you look at my work, everything I have. You've seen the intro- introduction to my website. Sure. That- and, I, and I've yeah. seen
1: your website, yeah. Yeah. So. do you have a style?
0: I don't think I have a style. I mean, if you look at all those cello players at the beginning of my video, every one of them is a different style, but they're all cello players.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So at the most, I could say maybe that my style is, I don't mean, know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, but i do think that there's something about the way that I use color that is idiosyncratic to me so a lot of oh, people yeah, say, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people say that they can tell by looking at my paintings because of the way that I use color
1: well that's that's what first came to mind I thought well your colors all make sense together so
0: yeah yeah
1: I, okay I, I i was including that in with
0: yeah uh, and I mean I'm thinking of people that have a definitive style like I think you can talk about Picasso's Blue Period. All the paintings that he did during that period were pretty similar in style. Or his his representational period before he even went into the Blue Period was, you know, very classical representational. And then, and then he went into his, you know, totally abstract uh, with the the uh, different perspectives, where one painting would have five or six different perspectives in it and and then he stayed with that style for a long time and it was you look at it you knew it was picasso right sure right so when people get into galleries they have a recognizable style so that if a painting sells when they take that one off the wall and they put another one in its place people coming in know that's the same artist Mm -hmm. that would never happen with my work
2: you don't think so (laughs) no i don't think so I um...
0: people come to my house. I used to do a gallery show once a year, and we'd move all the furniture out of the house and just fill the whole house up with art. Mm-hmm. And then a few other artists would be in the yard under tents and have their art up on um, you know, panels and whatnot. And people people who didn't know me would come in and they'd look at all the art and they'd say, Oh, there's so many artists in here. <laughs> like, no, that's all my stuff. But it's just the way I maybe I'm ADHD or something, because it feels like when I do a painting that I really love and I think, oh, that's it. I want to do every painting from now on just like that. And then I start on the next painting and then I think, yeah, but what if I did this instead? And what if I use that medium or what if I change brushes or what if I held the brush further out like this while I'm working, you know, or and the what ifs just kill me because then I'm off on some other trail.
1: Mm -hmm. well I've started doing um some more representational work lately over the last year or so and what I've really been excited to find there is that um I'm just I'm just painting the best I can (laughs) and um not not really trying to reproduce what I've done in the past, just going with whatever I have found success with in terms of getting something that I like. Mm-hmm. And um, and really just, just sticking with, and you know, they're not, you know, I've, I, there are, there are photo realists and I'm not shooting for that, but I am, I'm just trying to paint as, as well as I can, what I, what I see. And what I notice is, across a uh, half dozen paintings, there's a there's a pretty consistent style and it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of comes out with uh it just it just happens. But I do think you have a style. Um but um but I think a lot of that is is the color for sure. Yeah.
0: Well probably when I do figurative work and the and the um uh, there's more drawing in it, you can see my drawing style.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Because I'm definitely not, um, definitely not photorealist and I never learned anatomy. So my, my figurative drawings are, are naive at best maybe, but, but I'm much more interested in the relationship between the figure or the form and the background Mm -hmm. I want them to interrelate with each other and push and pull so that in some of my work, my goal was I would like to be able to put my hand over the face of this person and have a person think that this entire painting was just an abstract painting. Mm -hmm. But when I take my hand away from the face, you'd immediately see, oh, that's where the figure is. So that a person coming to look at it would have to adjust their vision just a little bit in order to see what i wanted them to see and i worked very hard at that for quite a long time i guess i could show an example of one of those because it was a lot of fun to do those Um, and uh let me bring up my website for that I like this push and pull thing. Well, even this one is kind of like that. Um, I was I was trying not to make the figure too obvious. So when you, if you saw this from across the room, you might not notice that there was a figure in there.
2: Right.
0: Um, but particularly in the Loot Player series, you see if you, I can't do it right here, but if you cover up her face and you just look at the rest of her body and the shapes and the background and everything, I guess the hands and the face give it away. But other than that, it's pretty much just an abstract painting. In all these lute players, I was working with that, trying to play with the background. Like in this one particularly, you can see that the background and the foreground, are they're the same
2: mm-hmm. value.
0: Right. They're the same intensity, pretty much the same play of colors, the same kinds of shapes that are working in there but then there is that face that tells you oh wait there's a lute player in there someplace mm-hmm. so that that was kind of my goal with this whole series
1: and you're still whether or not you've got the figure you're still working with the rules of composition you're still working yeah. with the rules of of color
2: theory right and um yeah
0: trying to get the placement of- you know i mean there's the whole fibonacci thing mm-hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So, I mean, like this would be the typical place here would be one of the typical four places that you could have the uh, center of interest. I was also taking a class where every painting had to be of the same subject. So I I had to do 20 large paintings, all of the same subject. So um, you're kind of limited as to what you can do if you've got this lute player.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So what that does, though, is it just gives you this burst of creativity because I don't want to paint that same lute player over and over and over again. So what can I do to make it different next time?
2: Right. Yeah,
1: it's an exploration.
0: Yeah. So like this one was mainly in reds and yellows. This one's maybe mainly with the alternate triad of purple, orange and green. But I also wanted to explore more of the Asian aspect of the line drawing and the old um, Japanese print style mm-hmm. with this one. And um, I like exploring backgrounds that are kind of mystical, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, anyway, that was part of what I was working on there. Uh-huh.
1: Well, so figure in the, 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 form in the background or the the figure Mm -hmm. in the background um is is one of the things which you end up thinking a whole lot about in um in my area of physics because Mm -hmm. there, um in in particle physics there is sometimes a an idea that you want to get to the very bottom where there's no background and i may be kind of straw manning here but um but in condensed matter physics, you're still doing physics. You're still using the same tools that the particle physicists use, but um, but always you know that there is a background, there is a crystal lattice, um, and so you're not you're not studying the um, you're not studying the individual atoms of the lattice. Instead, you're studying the um, the collective behavior of the lattice as a whole, and um, so there are things which which happen, which are happen on top of the crystal structure as the backdrop, um, and um, these are some of those things that would be hard to anticipate from just knowing the uh, the equations of motion of the electrons and the uh, and the ions, and um, you you find that you have. Um, emergent phenomena, collective behavior, tons of words for these, similar, in a lot of ways to words that are used in this little corner of the internet., mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, not not too far from thinking about distributed cognition or or something like that. But you have similar questions like the question of when you're looking at uh, ants, and you wonder, well, now wait a second what's really the organism here is the ant, the organism, or is the colony, the organism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and that's where in my area of physics, a lot of you start to think about the, um, the background and understanding the, uh, the object recognizing what's worth calling an object. So, um, Sometimes you have things that are really worth calling an object, which are not among the uh, the typical things that you talk about in uh, an elementary level discussion of of physics. So you might have, um, you know, in, you've got the nuclei of the atoms, which for a condensed matter physicist, you just kind of leave alone, you just call it the nucleus. You don't look at what's inside of it, but you've got the nucleus, you've got the electrons um, and um, and that's what you have. But. um, But when you have lots of those together and they're all interacting, you might have other things. So you would have what's called quasi particles. um, And that that just refers to um, collective behavior, which exists. In its own right, but is not is not made up of the or is not just one of those kind of elementary particles. Um, so you can have you can have little bits of usually this is like a wave um, that is
0: form. They're, oh, they're sort sorry. of like I didn't mean to do oh. that. I didn't no, mean that's to okay. do... <laughs> keep going. So you have sure. these... so
1: so you have this whole like uh, this whole uh, zoology or uh, uh, taxonomy of, of these quasi particles, which, um, which show up. Um, and Oh, this is, I'm sorry. I'm just looking at the, at the video.
0: Yeah. I'll, exp- uh, I'll explain this in a second. Sure, sure, Yeah. Yeah.
1: And this is, this is not, this is not something that's particularly exotic necessarily for, for a condensed matter physicist and, and for other physicists, they'll know what what this is but something that exists long enough for it to interact with other things and that's kind of the key is that you can have things that kind of show up and disappear but if they show up and they survive long enough to actually interact with um, other things then then they're worth worth talking about
0: well so when you're talking about the crystal lattice structure and um and then you were talking about quasi-particles. I just thought about this video. I'm, I'm not gonna play it now because I can't remember exactly where the clip is and it's a long video, it would take us a long time to find it, but I wanted to make you aware of it. Have you heard of Sharon Glotzer? Um, uh, she she's a, she. I believe she's a particle physicist, but she did this bunch of, you can tell she's talking about quasi-crystals here, but she did this uh, research This is from 2015, this talk that she did. So prior to that, she was doing research with um, particles. They were synthetic particles. And she did the research with a number of different shapes of synthetic particles. But let's just say one shape was uh, uh, spheres, little spheres. Lots and lots and lots of little spheres put into a space they're synthetic particles so there's no life in them or anything like that they they don't even have they don't even have nucleus i mean they probably do have they have atoms in them i suppose but the synthetic particle itself isn't like it's got electrons going around the outside of it there might be a lot of atoms inside sure. the synthetic particle okay so what they did was they put them inside a space and then little by little they removed space so they you know, made the boundary smaller, smaller, smaller. And at a certain point, these particles would automatically um, arrange themselves into a crystalline structure. Mm-hmm. And her statement that she made in the video was, they're doing that on the basis of entropy alone. And I heard that and I thought to myself, well, that's not entirely true because you interfered. (laughs) You reduced the size of the boundary. And my experience with art is that the tighter that I make a boundary, the more creativity goes on inside the boundary. Um, The tighter I make the boundaries for myself, the more creativity can go on. And I do think that there's something true about that at some level but she did change the boundary. And so that's always seemed to me as though it wasn't exactly entropy alone. So I looked into more about this whole issue of particles and quasicrystals. And one of the things that um, I thought I learned and I wanna ask you about it is that that the particles are seeking the each particle anthropomorphizing here each particle is seeking the maximum amount of freedom or space that it can have within a given placement Mm -hmm. so they'll arrange themselves in a way that each one can have the maximum degree of either freedom or space is that is that roughly true
1: yeah um that is and i think that that is probably a, a good image to use uh when thinking about entropic selection of of uh, of patterns of states of, of phases of matter um yeah i think entropy gets a bad rap in the in the popular culture because the first the first form of entropy that we encountered um in in physics was thermodynamic entropy and it starts to become associated with disorder. And, um, and then, then you start talking about the heat death of the universe and, Oh my, <laughs> this is so um, but, it, but I, I don't think there's really a, a need for, for entropy to be quite so vilified. And entropy is entropy is a measure of, um, of how many different, um, configurations on the small scale Mm -hmm. correspond to a particular way that we can observe things at the large scale. Um, And when you have something that would be a, um, a very low entropy system would be one which, if you make any changes at all, is gonna start to look different. A high-entropy system is one where if you change something a little bit, everything's more or less the same. Um, Did I say that correctly? Yeah, I think so. Um, And so when...
0: um, Well, so basically what she was saying then is that by by reducing the space when they formed into a crystalline structure was that a reduction in entropy?
1: No, likely it was an an increase of entropy. And um so there is this is actually what well I don't I don't want to say that necessarily but I'm I'm thinking of the research which I did for my doctorate which mm-hmm. was um which was entropic selection of a particular um class of ground states we found we found a a, a, a phase of a phase of matter associated with um wh- which was arrived at due to its um increased entropy even though it was an ordered state so there there are some, Unusual circumstances in which entropy can actually drive you into or drive a system into an ordered state, um, which you know kind of goes against what the sort of popular idea of what entropy is.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and did you come to a conclusion with your doctorate?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so is it's a highly, uh, it's a, it's a funny, funny system and, and, and hard to explain, but in, in a way it's like, if you were to, if you were to just let people choose, you know, just, just randomly, oh, we're not going to assign seats on this airplane. We, we won't assign seats. You know, so let's just, you know, a, a airplane's gonna be two-thirds filled and people can just sit wherever. And you might think, oh, well, if you just people can sit wherever, you're just gonna get some kind of a random distribution of people sitting on the airplane. But no, you're gonna get people so that all of the all of the windows and aisles are taken, but all of the middle seats are not, right? Two-thirds, you know what's what's gonna happen. So there are there are certain certain cases where. You can open it up to randomness and um, people want a little bit of elbow room. And because of that, even though, you know, the the space inside each seat still exactly the same, no matter which one you have, people want the elbow room and that elbow room um, can kind of give you uh, give you an ordering. Um, You might say, well, so if it's if it's something that is not if she's saying that it's it's entirely selected by entropy. What she's contrasting that with is that none of these states are going to be energetically favored over others. Um, so none of them are technically at lower energies. So none of the seats on the airplane actually have more space. But you know, if you hit some turbulence, then you get jostled out of your seat just a little bit, and you've got that elbow room beside you. Um, So So, so
0: this is what's so interesting, though, about scaling, right? Because you're using an example from human beings with agency and cognition and consciousness on an airplane. And you're using that to describe particles in a small space. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I get an implication from that, that particles are not just little dead rocks, is that
1: um i don't know if i would go with you that far <laughs> um but i oh, was but say you're
0: this. certainly using that language
1: oh sure sure and and uh, i mean one of you know one of my favorite aspects of studying physics one of the reasons that i went into physics was because there it is it's so right with uh with examples that you can that you can bring in, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's something that you want to be careful with. And I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that the the particles are you know are you know I wouldn't say that the particles have agency like the people have agency, but I just love having that really uh, wide range of of analogies to draw from. And
0: uh, well, I wasn't trying to say that or that I wasn't trying to say that you were saying or even that I was saying that particles have agency, but I do think there's something about this idea of freedom.
2: Yeah, I I think there's something about this
0: idea of freedom.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I do, too. Um, Yeah. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about that about cubism?
0: Yes, yeah, so I was going to bring up okay. that video, and sure. uh, and I have a couple of clips from it that I wanted to. Um... Well,
1: let me let me start out with uh with the uh the usual caveats and disclaimers and all of that, but not really. What I um so I I sent you this uh this video, which I thought was a really nicely made um video about. An interpretation of quantum mechanics called cubism, um, which um, which is at a, a, a kind of a level for a general general audience, and I like cubism because it's not deterministic. Um, a, a, a lot of the some of the well, the real popular interpretation of quantum mechanics right now is the many worlds interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I just think that there are there are so many things that I don't like about it and I don't like them for my own my own reasons that I think are well founded, but which aren't really necessarily related to the physics of it. I just mm-hmm. don't like I just don't like the philosophy behind it. I don't like the determinism of it. I don't like the many worlds idea. Um, and uh, but I do like I do like the ideas behind cubism and that's not to say that it's right, and there are some reasons why some other interpretations may be uh, really worth considering. But um, but I just found this so so refreshing, and so that's that's what so I wanted. So, to do.
0: so cubism is basic, uh, from what I got from this video, is quantum Bayesianism.
1: Quantum Bayesianism, um, which talks about which is. Uh, statistics from the point of view of belief about the world um, as as contrasted with frequentism which is um, the sort of classical idea of statistics but that's really not getting into um, that's really not at play here as much except belief about the world Um, Mm -hmm. and so cubism says that quantum mechanics tells you your best, um, your best path forward in betting or uh, betting on what's gonna happen. Uh, they
0: Yeah, one of the quotes he made was that we can bet on, this is from Oliver Wendell Holmes who said, we can bet on the behavior of the universe in its contact with us.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: So what does that mean?
1: It means that if you uh, if you're setting up an experiment and it's a quantum experiment, you can use quantum mechanics to place your bets on uh, how often you're going to get a certain result. And that quantum mechanics is the tool used to um, make those bets.
0: okay. so here's this little piece I thought was really
3: interesting. In any anyway, he says, well, what does it take to be a decision maker? Is that answered in this book? No, it's not answered in this book because this is a manual for decision makers. So it can't answer the question of where decision makers come from. You can uh, study the calculus in it, but studying the calculus will never tell you the recipe for making the thing that is able to use this book. Um, And so on the questions could go. Now there's a hint of these questions in the debate on quantum mechanics when a cubist says, uh, our starting point is an agent. And let's say maybe David Chalmers says, well what is an agent? You've got to tell me what an agent is. Well from the point of view of us, quantum theory is a manual that agents use. So it's not going to be able to answer the question of what is an agent. So this is why I think this, this is an apt metaphor. Okay, let's, let's repeat this.
0: So I thought that was really interesting that quantum theory is a manual that agents use. So it can't tell you what an agent is. In the same way that that book on statistics that he was holding was a manual for decision makers. So the book itself can't tell you what a decision maker is. It's used by decision makers, just as quantum quantum theory is used by agents. Mm-hmm. So Did you have any thoughts about that?
1: I love I, I love that clip. Um, and you know, as a as a physics student, uh, doing undergrad or doing graduate work um, when you're doing your classes, you do a whole lot of problems in quantum mechanics. And with most of those problems, there is a mathematical object which is front and center throughout the whole thing. And that's what's called the wave function. and uh, it'll it'll autocorrect to two words, but we all just write it as one word usually. but you know, it's the wave function. and um and it's this mathematical object. it goes into the Schrodinger equation and, um, is used when you're trying to calculate expectation values for energy or momentum or or any of that, um, and you use it so much on every single homework problem, and um, and I think this gives us the idea. Well, you know, eventually I I kind of remember not exactly the time, but I remember around the time where I started thinking, you know what, I think I think the wave function is what's real. I think that's what's real, and our experiences come out of that. Uh, and that's one that's one step. And the next step is to realize: wait a second, the wave function isn't just in this little portion of space, but it you know the the, it, the tails on it, the the asymptotes go out really far they might go out so far that they actually kind of cross off with some asymptote of a, of a wave function from a particle over here. And so really uh, not only is the wave function, what's really real, but the wave function is universal. The way, there's only one wave function in the whole universe. And then you, you learn about more complicated things and you learn about more complicated fields. And, you know, so the wave function, you know, maybe you got to go up to other levels, but, but that same thought sticks with you and, you, You think, yeah, that's what's real and it's universal. And those are the two ingredients that you need in order to arrive at the many worlds interpretation, the Everettian interpretation, um, which says that every possible outcome from a quantum experiment happens and we just don't really have direct experiential access with all of those And, and it's very exciting and then you realize, well, it's it's entirely deterministic. It's it's static, and um, and it doesn't tell good stories. Um, it's got weird moral implications. Like every time I, every time I don't do something awful, I think, gosh, somewhere else I did something awful. Um, and
0: uh, <laughs> that would be that would be exhausting. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, it's totally exhausting. But I think it's what comes about from doing tons and tons of quantum mechanics problems. You start to think, oh, well, I've done a lot of homework in quantum mechanics. You know what? I think that you don't want to think that all of what you've been doing is, is not real. And you start to kind of over over ascribe reality to a very helpful and very interesting and uh, sometimes fun mathematical object that you work with. But um I, you know, Everett um, was, was not a lifelong researcher and, you know, he was a student and he did some research, but um, I don't know. I, I think that, um, I think it's kind of the tyranny of the students who come up with the uh, the many worlds interpretation where you just, it's just people who've done too many, too many problem sets.
0: Well, he talks about this a little bit here. Um, Let's take a look at this. Go over here to 3058, I think.
3: And, you know, already, long before quantum theory came along, um, there were a number of philosophers who argued that a deterministic universe, you might as well just say it's a universe in which nothing happens because everything now determines everything that's going to come later. So why even go through the motions of moving from now to later? They contain exactly the same thing. The present completely determines the future. Why bother going to the future? Just just live in the present. Within the last month, two different philosophers have thought that Cubism didn't have a stance on determinism, and I've written to them um, pointing out, oh one of them was a PhD thesis from the University of Sydney, and I can't remember who the other one was, but I pointed out that in the very paper of mine that they cite, I have this statement and this statement and this statement. This is the total nightmare for any PhD. Student. strongly embraces <laughs> you, you the idea. You do not want to write your dissertation the and then have someone like, you
1: cite come in. That, Sorry to interrupt, but you don't okay. want to you know, write your dissertation and then get an email from someone who you've cited heavily and say, "Hell, wait, wait a second, this is this is not not what I said at all." Okay.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, it's really bad. Um, just. This the very end of what he wanted yes, to say. Yes, I'm sorry. This is That's this okay.
3: phrase again. Genuine novelty comes into the world. Genuine novelty is constantly seeping into the world. And-
0: yeah, so anyway, the reason I wanted to play this clip is that it had never occurred to me. I've heard people talking about determinism, and I've, I don't agree with it. Um, I understand the argument, I think, and I don't agree with it, but I've heard people talking about it, but it never occurred to me when I heard them talk about it that the implication was that if everything is determined then not, nothing means anything
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and when he brought that up i thought oh wow no wonder people are so in distress all the time if if any action that i take was already determined by the past but also any action that i take is going to determine my future and there's no there's no way out i mean It would be so bleak. I mean,
1: it would be bleak. Yeah. This is something I've thought a lot about. And um, there is, you know, one of the things that I think is rules out determinism to me um, is ironically causality. Causality is one thing causes another thing to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think just about everyone who believes determinism um, says, well, yeah, one thing causes another thing to happen. But I think that actually that totally rules out determinism. If you really want to keep causality, you can't have determinism. And the reason for that is because in a fully determined universe where everything is determined, then there is no reason to ascribe more causality. So let's say, you know, in 2023, on July 19th, something happens. There's no reason in a fully determined universe to ascribe any more cause to that thing happening on this day than any other point in time. Not, if everything's so completely locked in, then... I am who I am just as much from, you know, someone in Iceland I've never met as I am from my mother. And now, of course, you know, whatever, you got to make sure that there's, in a fully determined universe, there's no reason to say that I am who I am because of my mother any more than anyone else because everything's so completely locked in. And I think that that's um, I think that that's just absurd. I, obviously the causality, um, it you should be able to you should be able to ascribe causality from from things that are closer to you. Um, but if everything's static, then you can't really do that. So I think that's, that's one of the things that's lost.
0: Um, well, yeah, I mean, and just on a pragmatic level, you lose the entire legal system.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I think that's a huge, I think that's a huge motivator for a lot of people. Um, uh, in my more masochistic states, sometimes I would used to listen to Sam Harris and he would talk about, he would talk about this all the time because he, he has this idea that free will doesn't exist, and and he goes on and on about what the implications are for the legal system. He says, "Well, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't put people in prison for that, but we should, you know, maybe keep them away from other people." And it's like, "Well, okay," uh, but I think a lot of people who like determinism like it because it seems to them to be an understanding a way of understanding and sympathizing with people who have done have done horrible things or or uh, does that make sense?
0: Well, yes, I mean not not only that, but the whole idea of um, we seem to be living in an environment in which we have an excess of compassion for people who, for whatever reason, who don't have their lives together. <laughs> I mean, Jordan Peterson would say, you know, you need to sort yourself out if if you're 40 years old and for whatever reason you haven't sorted yourself out and therefore you're living on the streets or you have a less than optimal job because you didn't stay in high school, um, we don't want to have to ascribe consequences to their behavior because that feels uncompassionate. Mm-hmm. But I think we're approaching the problem from the back side. <laughs> we should be doing is trying to go to the front side and help people to make better decisions when they're young, give mm-hmm. them better educational guidance and straighten out for ourselves what we mean by the good life so that we have something to offer people to strive towards. Because if you start out at the front end saying, oh, well, all of this stuff has no meaning, then you pretty, pretty soon end up living on the streets. Then it for sure has no meaning. Yeah. <laughs> everybody else is supposed to be compassionate towards you when the real compassion would be helping you get off the street and helping you have a life of meaning. And uh, we're just in an upside down world, you know. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: for people like for people like you and me who are artists, it always seemed, and I don't want to put this on you, but as an artist, as someone who values creativity, I never understood why people at all found determinism to be um, comforting, um, because from from this side of things, the hope is that you can that you can create something, um, and that um, and that artistic expression is meaningful. Um, and I think that 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 does require um, it does require free will. Um, I think that it makes other people anxious from you know the reason we just talked about. But I, they're kind of. Complementary, not not necessarily complementary in the right way, but um, in a opposed opposed ways of looking at things.
0: Well, one of the things that I think when, that he talks about in here, and that I've also heard, are you familiar with Stephen Wolfram? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Stephen Wolfram has also talked about this, um, that I think really just puts determinism away. It, it, there's no way you can believe in determinism if you understand this principle. I'm going to bring up this uh, little clip here, and I think if the physicists really paid attention to this, they would change their idea about determinism. I got the right spot there. Forty-two thirty. In yeah.
1: nature, the the fact that we all do seem to inhabit
3: uh, the same world. I would say, I mean, maybe the best way to say how it's accounted for is to say what you call regularity. This is a, a kind of Bayesian idea. Um, things are similar to the extent that you ignore the distinctions. Um, so, how do you account for regularities? You sort of squint your eyes and don't don't look clearly at things, you forget the details, or you say that the details are unimportant. So for instance, um, every snowflake has six-fold symmetry. So if you look at where the crystals are, and you go around, you'll see that they point in six, six directions. But you know the old adage that every snowflake is different? So, oh, what's the regularity? Well, I'm going to ignore all of the differences in the snowflake. They're there, but I'm going to ignore all of those little little unimportant things and focus on the big thing that makes them all the same. So I think, ultimately, all of the regula- what we call regularities in the universe are of this variety. It's that we are consciously choosing to n- not focus on the distinctions. And therefore we start to see, we start to say, well this is similar to that. but that's, that's a construction of the human mind. It's not inherent in the thing itself because in the thing itself, in the qualia, all the distinct qualia in Donald's way of talking, or in the pure experiences of James's way of talking, everything in the universe is genuinely distinct from everything else. Nothing is repeated. And it's the...
0: Okay, now, everything is genuinely distinct from everything else. Nothing is repeated. If he's correct, then the quantum physicists who are working on the standard model and insisting that there are only so many different kinds of particles and every charm quark is identical to every other charm quark and every up quark is identical to every other up quark is running head headlong into this thing that he just brought up. And I want to show you something from Stephen Wolfram. Wolfram does these things called working sessions with scientists from different fields, because he's trying to figure out where things fit into his new theory of fundamental physics and he did this working session last year in molecular computing every once in a while i'll listen to one of these and i'll just have it on in the background while i'm cleaning house or something and something Mm -hmm. will pop out to me and i was listening to this one and this popped out to me
4: okay so james's observation is that the proof of uniqueness, of an eam, of an atom of existence.
0: Now, I have to explain here. In his theory, space is made up of atoms of existence, but he doesn't call them atoms. He calls them eams because they're actually a lot smaller than an atom. They're actually a lot smaller than a quantum particle. So he has a word for them. He calls them eams. How do you spell that? E-M-E-S. Excellent
4: cannot be made in the context of the Rulliad alone.
0: The proof of the existence of eems. Let's just go back here.
4: James's observation is that the proof of uniqueness of an eem, of an atom of existence, cannot be made in the context of the Rulliad alone, but requires Regression to the hyper uh, Okay, so the, the, just, the... Just, just...
0: The Ruliad is, roughly speaking, the universe in Wolfram's theory. And the hyper is that which is outside the Ruliad. Because the Ruliad is based on rules. Those rules got to come from somewhere. So <laughs> they're coming from outside in the Hyper-Ruliad. So he's saying the proof of the uniqueness of EAMS, because James has said every EAM is unique. And they're going to go on with this discussion. For some
1: context, right? So EAMS Eames have to, uh, they, they possess two properties. So the first is that they exist, which is important. And the second is that they have UUIDs. Okay, the, they have to exist because if EAMS don't exist, I mean, they're the primordial building blocks of the rule so the ems don't exist and the rule doesn't exist but they also have to be unique because if they're not unique you can't distinguish between them and i would say if you can't distinguish between the ems then there's no reason to say that there are multiple ems and then you basically have a big crunch in the rule and the whole thing will collapse so you have to have both of them
4: you know e- uh, e- I, I, e- yeah I, yeah go ahead the, okay so first point about the rule ad is the you know one of the key issues is um You know, the Ruliad in its kind of in its rawest state uh, trees out everything. Okay? But but there are equivalences which make the Rouliad non trivial. Okay, but those equivalences we have said are but that though those equivalences are being made by observers. I mean, most of the equivalencing is...
0: And what I take him to mean here is that he's talking in the same way that Christopher Fuchs was talking about the the way we see snowflakes or the way we see things in the universe where we kind of ignore the differences and we see the similarities. Um,
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and...
0: This is is Wolfram's idea that the observer is embedded in the universe. Therefore, even though the universe in general is computationally irreducible, there are slices of computational reducibility that are there because of the kinds of observer that we are, that we see the world in a certain way that allows us to develop rules of physics and rules of mathematics and to see see things the way we do, because we are observers embedded in the universe. In other words, we don't have an outside view. We can't look at the whole universe and say, oh, it's this way or that way, because we are also part of the universe.
1: Right. And this is, I mean, this is in, this is in all all sorts of discussions that we're having in, in the corner. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's, you if you step back from it for a second, it seems well. This is this is kind of a trivial statement that things are similar to the degree that they're similar, and they're different to the degree that they're and they're. But they're ultimately different, and we kind of use our judgment to determine what what is uh, what's worth being called similar. But um, but it, I don't think it's trivial. I think it's I think it's true. But I I do think it's it's deep and um, yeah. I just like I like finding. Uh, Finding people who are talking about that again it is it's basic but um yeah i'd like to i'd like to read more into uh wolfram's uh wolfram's description because i haven't i haven't taken the time to do that yet
0: you can get a pretty rough and ready idea of it just from his uh i i'll put a link to his page he's done really wonderful work of um Documenting everything that he's done, but I've also probably got half a dozen videos on my channel talking about it and okay. um, taking different aspects of the theory and looking at it from a lot of different angles. But to me, this thing about about the Eames having unique user IDs. <laughs> I mean, he said the Eames have UUIDs. Basically, what he's saying is that every Eem in the universe is unique. That's a huge statement to just kind of toss off in a working session, right? But they're, they're thinking about that for a particular reason, because in his theory, he says, you know, everything trees out, but what he means is that you start with one rule. We probably need to do this at another, we probably need to have another conversation be up for that, but I can show you really quick. Um, We can show you really quick his, his basic concept. Um, the visual summary here. So you can see this is kind of like a tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the basic idea is that if you take a rule, and then you when you apply the rule, the very first aim, you have one aim here, and then it has two options. You apply the rule, and now you have this. And if you keep applying that rule over and over again, you start getting something that looks like these things. Uh And if you apply it multiple times, you start getting something that looks like this. Uh And if you take that apart and you look at it from the standpoint of when the updating events happen, because what he says is that space... Is made up of particles of space. So this first eem is a particle of space, and then time updates events. So every time time updates, the number of particles grows. So time is, in some sense, growing space.
1: You know, one of the hardest one of the hardest things to learn when you're first uh, first introduced to a new field with its new uh, all of its new notations. Is what an arrow means. So, <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to take a look at this myself and and figure yeah. out. I see two different types of arrows just in that one. Uh, well, maybe three uh, in that one little. Uh, yes.
0: Yeah. He explains but, the whole thing. So, yeah. So yeah, I, got, yeah, I got I got to figure out what an arrow
1: means before I'm able to comment much on this, but.
0: Well, I also there's also another guy who's actually doing videos, um, animation mm-hmm. videos, explaining step by step how this grows to this grows to this,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I can link to that as well. Um, okay. Yes, please. Yeah, it, it's it's good stuff. He he's really doing a good job on this. But the point is that everything is treeing out here, and this means that the the Eames, This is just all, like the whole universe is made up of these eems of space, which are, which have substance, that space actually has substance. Mm -hmm. And that that substance is ordered by the events of time, because each time time updates these events, then space grows.
1: Well, you know what, Lewis, you know, Lewis hated it when, people called the trilogy, the space trilogy. Do you know why?
0: No. Uh-uh.
1: Because, because he said that makes it sound so empty. It's full. It's full.
0: Yes. Yes. It's full. It's full. And I mean, this is one of the things I like about Wolfram's theory is that it may or may not be true, but the implications that are coming out of it are just very, very rich. I've certainly learned a lot from yeah. it. And you've given me already an hour and a half more than an hour and a half of your time so um maybe we can do this again sometime it's been well, that would be great. picking your brain
1: thank you so much Karen and uh hope to talk to you more about art and uh painting and physics and uh and Eames and all of that
0: so. yeah sounds really great okay have a great all day bye
1: right. bye-bye